off again But it's the only way you're ever gonna learn You look back and it's all in the past I'm dwelling on the thoughts I cannot say to you If I don't say the words then maybe Good evening, welcome to NUFC Matters. We are live with Ben Jacobs tonight. How are you, Ben? I'm good. How are you? Very good, mate. Good to see you. Thanks for coming on again. And uh, just a quick shout out to uh, the likes of Rachel and Roger and uh, Julie, who we were out with, Tom as well, the moderators, the people who look after our chat uh, all out on Friday night for a, a little soiree. It was good to catch up with uh, you guys and uh, had a thoroughly enjoyable evening. So big shout out to them. Uh, look forward to doing that again soon. But as always, we get Ben on to uh, the chat about Newcastle United and uh, questions that you may have about potential incomings, potential outgoings, or anything else you want to know about football. And uh, we always start with those questions that people have posed on Twitter for the first half. So anybody in the chat wants to put a question forward, I'll try to get through the best of those in the second half of the show. But we'll start with Paul on Twitter, who says, Hi all, Ben, do you think the takeover at Chelsea will end up being leveraged at some point in the future, similar to Manchester United? And if so, would that cast doubt on them remaining at Stamford Bridge due to the high land value and potential pounds that a sale could generate? Great question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing about the Chelsea takeover is that the redevelopment plans were very rigid and specific. So there'll be no danger of Chelsea leaving Stamford Bridge and the Clear Lake Bowley Consortium, the Americans that have come in and replace Roman Abramovich have really only looked at one thing and that's how can they get redevelopment plans that Abramovich tried and failed with off the ground and it won't be something that they do imminently necessarily comparative to other priorities but they're looking to modernize the football club and in modernizing a football club and you could argue the same with St James's Park as well what you get an opportunity to do is build around only the football. So in the same way that Stamford Bridge is an iconic stadium, so is St. James's Park. But with Stamford Bridge, you have areas around it that are particularly problematic as far as redevelopment is concerned. And you have to negotiate with government and council and ultimately manufacture space that isn't there. And in doing so, that makes you more marketable. And by marketable, I mean not just as a fan experience. If you look at the Tottenham Stadium and you're paying big money for tickets, you get things like faster internet. And we all know away from redevelopment in an architectural sense, having better grub or a more developed program and so on, all add to you getting your value for money. But away from all of that, if you can add a extra hotel, a restaurant, if you can improve the transportation, if you can obviously increase the capacity and so on. It all allows you to take something that's a part of, in this case, Chelsea's history and culture and turn it into something special. And if you look at where Stamford Bridge was a few decades ago before Abramovich, and now there has obviously been some headway and improvement, but the new ownership group aren't looking to find a new site. And I think that within the next 10 years, that the majority owner, which is clearly capital and investment firm in Santa Monica, in those 10 years that they've had to commit to staying at Chelsea, so they cannot sell their majority stake, they've also bound themselves into an agreement that says that under no circumstances will they explore a new stadium, unless for whatever reason something changes and makes any kind of redevelopment at Stamford Bridge impossible. 
but I don't think that we'll get to that point due to the fact that the reason why this particular bid was so strong is because they had different aspects within their consortium who focus on a specific area. And one of the areas was the redevelopments. They scored very highly on that. And part of the group has a London-based businessman called Jonathan Goldstein, who is a property development expert, and David Hickey, who was the project consultant that Abramovich used to try and do the redevelopment of Stamford Bridge, is also part of that particular consortium and will have big input on the redevelopment plans as well. So I think there's confidence at Chelsea's end that they will be able to redevelop Stamford Bridge. And I don't think that there's too many similarities really between Chelsea and Manchester United in that respect. This is an ambitious ownership group at Chelsea who know how to get things like redevelopments done quickly on budget and working with the relevant authorities. So there'll be no problem redeveloping Stamford Bridge and Todd Bowley, who's the effectively Amanda Staveley equivalent in the sense that he's got that day-to-day -day or operational control, has done all of this already at the LA Dodgers, who had a sort of hundred odd million redevelopment relatively recently. And the fan base and the baseball club itself saw that as a huge success. So they know what they're doing in redevelopment, if anything, the American side of the consortium know more about redevelopment than they do about football at this stage. That's not to say they're clueless on the football side, but, you know, PIF at Newcastle, what do they know more about? Football or tourism, investment or football and so on. And the answer is never football, but they'll learn and they'll bring in experts. And it's exactly the same with Chelsea as well, that if there's a hurdle and if there's an issue around the redevelopment of Stamford Bridge, the Chelsea fans can rest assured that within that consortium, there are property-specific experts and there are people with government and council relationships to get the job done. Okay, great question, great answer. Sid Stobart, good evening. He says, what are your thoughts on the Premier League delivering the request by the so-called Big Six to ensure that they avoid playing each other before the World Cup? What message does this send to fans and the players from other teams the Super League breakaway seems to have been forgotten. It's a good question. And I think that the challenge is that the Premier League are not going to come out and say it was intentional. They're going to maintain that the vast majority of the fixtures, despite the fact that you can put in certain requests, are generated at random. And with the big six being the minority in terms of when they play each other versus when they play the other 14 teams in the league, you can argue statistically there's always going to be these weeks where they don't come up against each other. But it's quite clear that it was intentional in the same way that you don't see them come up against each other on the first game of the season either. And that is because of various things, not wanting that big fixture to start the season, not perhaps even wanting to risk some of the big names starting rusty and coming up against each other. And I think my issue with how the fixture before Qatar was determined is that who does it benefit? So there should be no issue with Manchester United playing Liverpool at any point in the season. And you could actually argue, depending on who's got who and who's going to the World Cup, that it might even benefit one of the big six playing another big six. Because if you're a home team like Manchester United and you come up against Man City, how do you know that Pep Guardiola is not going to rotate more and rest more because of the World Cup 
versus Man United. So you might actually get a better opportunity to beat one of the big six and so on. And I think that it becomes unclear who benefits. So if you're saying to me, Gareth Southgate with consultation has gone to the Premier League and said that these are the clubs that have the most likely proportion of England internationals, and they're not necessarily spread across the big six, and they might be weighted in two or three of the big six rather than all six of them. But if Southgate basically says, listen, I'm going to be picking the vast majority of my players for the England squad from, in my head at the moment, Chelsea Football Club and Arsenal. Just plucking two names off the top of my head. So what I don't want is them playing each other because those games are high intensity. There's a lot at stake. There's more chance they'll be full-blooded. I'm worried that my England players will go at each other and someone will get injured. I'd much rather them play, with respect, a Brentford, or I'll use my team so I don't offend anyone else, a Leicester City. And then maybe it gives those teams, the bigger teams, the opportunity to play some of their non-World Cup players if they've got them or rest of you. And, you know, in the case, obviously, of the big teams with, say, an Italian player, they can go ahead and do that. And perhaps that's the logic there. And I would get that if England were leading on it. So we're keeping the big teams apart to benefit England before a World Cup. But when you look at the big six, the vast majority of their World Cup players are coming from all of the major contenders. So it's helping Spain, it's helping Germany and Brazil and so on. And that's the thing I don't get. I don't see the benefit to specifically Man U or Man City, whether they do or don't play each other the week before a World Cup. But I see the benefit to an international manager. But why do we care with the Premier League being so global about doing something that benefits Spain or Germany or Brazil? So if someone can come forwards from England and say we wanted it and justify it, I would have room to entertain that possibility because it will benefit our country from our league. But it just seems like the big teams are being given an advantage and it's being club-led. And that's why I've got a problem with it because I don't think that Liverpool or Manchester United, just because they fall into a big six, should have a on-paper easier fixture the week before the World Cup to allow them to possibly rest some of their stars or who knows just get more chance of having a victory when their big stars have got one eye on the world cup and might be a bit more cautious about how they play the game that doesn't seem fair because the other clubs in the premier league have got plenty of internationals going off to the world cup as well so that fixture list the week before to make it as fair as possible should in my opinion have been completely random and I think the Premier League should have come out and said that, that there's no ability to make a request in that fixture list when, in fact, it looks like exactly the opposite has happened. OK, Colin Wilson says, hi, guys, transfer speculation. What position do you think is our priority? Personally, I think a striker. And who is the best around that will come? Bearing in mind, we do an upper champion league football. We want someone that buys into the project, not a mercenary. Well, we've managed to go... 12 minutes without mentioning Newcastle transfers and Ekatike seems as if it could get done this week. Seems to be a lot more positivity around that deal. Talks of medical staff being on standby, Ekatike having a small break and then coming over. So this week seems to be a big week and maybe Colin will get his wish. And I agree with Colin, by the way, the striker is the main area for me. Wide player, centre-back and 
some form of goalkeeper, but if it proves to be a backup goalkeeper, then it becomes a little bit less urgent. But strikers needed because Callum Wilson won't necessarily go through an entire season fully fit or firing. And he's in his 30s. And Chris Wood was not bought for Newcastle United as a top half or European contender, although I still think that he'll be a very useful player. And anyone else behind them that can play in those more versatile positions will weigh in with goals. But what's the quickest way, whether Newcastle are planning in three years, five years, 10 years, to get into Europe or better? And the obvious answer is to have one striker focal point that can weigh in with 15 plus goals and if you take the Newcastle side now and you add 15 goals to one striker whether that's existing or new then Newcastle United are six or seven places for me minimum better off than they were last season which puts them into that sort of sixth seventh eighth position where you probably want to be and top half next season will be a very good finish for Newcastle and if they make a few marquee signings or start as well as they finish the back half of last season who knows but it's unrealistic to say you're going to jump from last season even in the second half of the season to in my opinion anyway top four but a 15 goal a season striker from the existing squad or brought in will definitely solidify that push for Europa League, Europa Conference League or top half finish. And then from there, you can really build and make a push to one, finish in that top half season after season after season and to improve to the point where you go from, let's say, sixth to fifth and then eventually try and break into the top four. And Hugo Ekatike is not, for me, necessarily the solution because you're bringing in a player, let's not forget, that scored three league goals on loan in 2021 and then last season, 10 in 24, which is a good return, but he's going from league on to Newcastle United in the Premier League at a different pace in a different style with a different manager and a different culture. And it's very easy to just look at the numbers and forget that he's 19 years of age. A phenomenal talent and somebody that you almost buy now because you know that if you allow him to carry on, he hits the age of 21, 22. And not only does the price double or triple, but that's when the real big guns come in. And it's a compliment to Newcastle if they get him that this is a player being watched by Champions League clubs. So you need to be decisive and swoop now. And if he joins Newcastle, a phenomenal signing. But is he 15 goals in his first season in the Premier League? Not necessarily. So I don't think Newcastle will have room for two strikers unless they either find a way of getting some money back for Chris Wood. But it's a little bit harsh on someone that only joined in January. But it wouldn't too surprise me if next January Chris Wood goes somewhere, either on loan or is sold, because there's a sort of acceptance if Newcastle are doing well that he's not exactly what they're looking for. And then you start saying, well, who's out there in the market, regardless of Ekatike's talent and potential, which surpasses some of the names I'm about to mention, but who's out there right now that can hit the ground running in the Premier League and would be good for Newcastle? And I think that two names spring to mind, Ricarlison and Gabriel Jesus. Jesus is the perfect signing for any club, in my opinion, and it looks like he's going to Arsenal. There's no strong indication that Newcastle are seriously in the mix there. But I'd say, why not? Because he's at a bargain price, roughly 40 to 45 million, and he will score goals for fun 
whoever he joins. And he'll get very close, in my opinion, if not better than 15 goals, should he join an Arsenal, a Chelsea, or more hypothetically, a Newcastle. And then Rickarlison is seemingly the, for want of a better word, backup that Newcastle are considering if they don't get Ekatike. But I think he would have more of an instant impact. And my question mark over Rickarlison is which personality are you going to get rather than the player? The talent's there, the finishing is there, and I think he could fit into Eddie Howe's style. But what's he like in the dressing room? It's a bit like Dembele as well. Hit or miss, hot or cold. What happens when he doesn't play or things don't go that well? And I think the Newcastle are all about culture and fit at the moment. So when you bring in a young, talented French player who's got an ego in the right sense and on the football field, you'll definitely see that swagger if you sign him, but off the football field, he's more sort of humble. Whereas Ricarlison has been part of cliques at Everton and training ground bust-ups and overzealous celebrations, like when he just picked up a flare and dangerously lobbed it back into the crowd. And some of that can be offset when you just score goals and everyone goes, great, he's kind of a cult figure and we love that volatile nature about him but I think Newcastle are a little bit put off by what they've heard off the field and around the training ground by Rickarlison which is why they're looking at Ekatike but for me if I was Newcastle it may just not be a realistic possibility but I would be straight in there for Gabriel Jesus I think he's the best option for any Premier League club of those who are available in the market yeah, I mean, look, here's you would be a would it be a marquee signing? It would be quite incredible to think that we could attract somebody like that when we can't offer European football. But um, I get where you're coming from, Ben. Why not? You know, aim high. Um, I think the new owners 100% will have um, you know a list of these different players and be working their way through the list. And I genuinely feel that um, you know, sit back. Be patient. Uh, it's been the word of the week, certainly, from uh, from many, many people connected with Newcastle. Be patient. We will get there and uh, we will get the players that we want. Kipper McFish. I love that name on Twitter. says, does Ben Jacobs have any thoughts on Todd Bowley's comments that the big six will become the big seven? As far as I'm aware, it's the first public acknowledgement by a big six club that Newcastle are joining the party. A softening of the initial opposition to the new ownership, perhaps. I don't think like Chelsea have got a problem with Newcastle. And I think that it's interesting Bowley saying big six because it kind of means he acknowledges he's inheriting that mantle of which Chelsea are a part. And clear late Bowley are in a transitional period and Todd Bowley won't necessarily know the politics and the dynamics of the Premier League. But he attended the last meeting, which was a little bit of a surprise in place of Bruce Buck. And we'll now get a sense of kind of who his, for want again of a better phrase, allies and enemies are. And when you have these American owners, particularly someone like Bowley and American sports like baseball that he's worked in, and the NBA is another good example, they're very collaborative. So your rivals on the court or the pitch or the field, whatever sport you're in, but off it, there's a lot more acceptance that to grow the brand and to grow the league, you have to work together. And Bowley is very much of that mentality. And I think that his comments were basically saying that his understanding is there's six big clubs in the Premier League and Newcastle's Saudi owners and the money that comes with it means there's now seven major players. So that's an acceptance that he, and by implication, the other five of the so-called big six, see Newcastle as a serious threat. 
And this is mirrored talking to people in all levels. The scouts I've spoken to during the early part of the transfer window at some of the big clubs have said exactly the same thing, that Newcastle changes the game. The transfers that they're not seriously involved in, the club is still name-dropped or leveraged. And then when they go for a transfer, there's a danger it could inflate the market. And you have to give credit so far to Newcastle. And Dan Ashworth will be very grounded. And the same can be said for Howell because they're not getting sucked in. They're making sure that even if they want someone... At this stage, they're not overpaying on fees and wages. And if they do, even if they can afford it under financial fair play, it's clear that they'll inflate the market. So Newcastle signings have been relatively sensible so far in terms of the finances behind them, which early stages I know will be quite reassuring, I think, to the big six. But in Bowley, I think what you're going to see at Chelsea is a very honest, transparent owner who engages with the fan base and says these things. And it's his belief. He's a straight talker. He's no nonsense. So if he thinks that Newcastle are now part of the big six, making it a seven on the field anyway, that shows you that there's a belief that Newcastle United Football Club is going to climb perhaps quicker even than the ownership group at Newcastle are saying. And the sort of irony of all ironies is that other owners and members of football clubs are talking about Newcastle, the strategy, the roadmap, the game plan a lot more than Newcastle's ownership group who are using words like patience and the majority ownership group PIF are not speaking at all to either the fan base or the media. So we don't know what PIF are thinking. We know what Amanda Staveley and others at the football club are doing in practice. And it's excellent that there's some engagement on things like social media. And it's good also to see the integration in the community and the support of the women's team. But what we don't know, unlike the Leicester ownership group when they came in, unlike the Chelsea ownership group, who I think will speak to the media and have already engaged with fan bases, unlike the Manchester United new CEO who was going to have a protest outside his house and ran off to a pub to avert it and started speaking quite candidly to fans over the last 24 hours. But nobody at PIF has said, this is our roadmap. Leicester's owner, the deceased one, unfortunately, had said when he was alive, very ambitiously when we were a championship club, Kun Vishai stated, Leicester want to be in the Champions League in three years when we were a championship club. And everyone laughed at him. And amazingly, Leicester managed to get there and win a Premier League. So that goal was out there and other football clubs will set their goals in public. But with Newcastle, it's a strange one because other owners are saying they are now a member of the big seven, including Newcastle, six plus one. Other ownership groups are saying Newcastle will change the market. And other people at other football clubs are talking about Newcastle's business, Newcastle's ambition, Newcastle's muscle power. And yet Newcastle United are just saying patience and continue to bring in players like Matt Target and Chris Wood and Bruno, who are smart, sensible signings at reasonable prices. So there's a little bit of a pinch of salt almost to be taken by anyone that isn't Newcastle talking about Newcastle because Newcastle haven't confirmed their own strategy and ambitions. They're taking it one season, one game, one step at a time. And it wouldn't remotely surprise me if it was put to Yasser Arumian, are Newcastle now part of a big seven, if he said no and the other six clubs said yes. And I think the last thing on this is just that the fact that Bowley said it probably tells you that he's trying to Again, I use this word very loosely, keep his enemy close. So it's much better if you think Newcastle are a threat in terms of 
on the field, but also inflating the market off it to work collaboratively and make sure that the biggest clubs can grow the Premier League brand together in new parts of the world, which might get you a bigger TV deal, can play exhibition games and can just have a more cordial relationship. So then as others perhaps try and utilise Newcastle's financial muscle power to their benefit with things like transfers, the Premier League clubs will kind of have an agreement that when they do business between themselves, it's done a set way that doesn't undermine each other, isn't that cutthroat. And it's just common sense, isn't it, that a strong Premier League, whether that's with a big six, a big seven or a big 20, as long as there's promotion and relegation, a strong competitive Premier League, even if it knocks a few of the clubs that don't move as fast off their perch, off their mantle, it's better for the brand, it's better for the growth, it's better for the TV money that you can get, it's better for the market, it attracts the world's top players. So as a fan, bring it on. Newcastle entering a seven, Leicester winning a Premier League, Wolves, West Ham, at least sort of in the first half of last season, up there challenging for Champions League football and so on. It adds to the value and marketability of the league. And I think that Bowley, of all of the owners, in the big six sees that more than most yeah great stuff uh that's the end of the questions on twitter so let's uh, say thank you to our sponsors spider miner worldwide coverage from gareth nathan and the lads down there and um the only cryptocurrency miner that can mine five different cryptocurrencies at the same time whilst using virtually no energy and it's vpn protected by yours now at www minor.spidervpn.org thanks to skipsandbins.com telephone 0800 2545 2523 email inquiries at skipsandbins.com website www.skipsandbins.com easy contract free and pay as you go waste collection thanks to lng family funeral directors 01913897245 and to garden of healing dispensary cbd hemp and cannabinoid specialists www.goohd.com Thanks to qtechshop.co.uk, the makers of pool tables and snooker tables in Walls and Newcastle, and the guys who do our website, nufcmatters.com. And thanks to Kai, meet the new game over screen, drop into a Clear Run device near you, available on Apple Store, Google Play, and clearrun.game. Thanks to Media Arts for all the help with the video side of things. If you want to subscribe, hit the Newcastle Legends logo on the bottom right-hand corner, and you can subscribe for free. We still do seven shows a week. And a few more besides, hit the thumb up to like the video, click share to share your social media and drop into the comments box to speak to like-minded Newcastle fans. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean and the rest. Usually goes up 24 hours after the YouTube show has finished. If you want to join the channel, you can click join and join YouTube below, which is quite cheap. Or you can contribute by going and joining the uh, cult via the website nufcmatters.com and what do you get for that well you get a pen you get a, uh, a nice scarf you get a membership card and you get a cup and you get entered into the monthly draw and we have just given away a thousand pounds or a season ticket this week uh, to uh, a very lucky winner mr p Wright. so well done to him i think john has been in touch with him and he's very very happy and well done to all of those who won the runners up prizes we also uh, give away uh, car stickers to anyone who subscribes nufcmatters.com is where you need to go to email john and he will send you one out nufc fans foodbank.co.uk is still operational during the close season please make a donation today every penny counts uh, towards the food bank and uh, don't forget mick Lowe's and andy griffin uh, you can see them on the 24th of june on friday tickets are 12 pound and 15 pound uh, andy griffin's first talking so get yourselves up to see the lads 
next Friday. And there is a raffle uh, again, a new one for the Alan Shearer Bowl. Uh, tickets are two ninety nine, limited to ninety nine tickets. And then I would nufcmatters.com to win a signed Alan Shearer two sixty ball. Okay, into the questions on uh, Twitter, and we've got quite a few uh, off Twitter now. Into the chat, sorry. Uh, let's see what we've got. Roger says, "Evening, Steve, Ben, and all. Do you think we'll see a surprise or two this week before my holidays?" <laughs> I think the advantage before you go on holiday is that the players themselves are coming back from holidays so that always means that this week is more likely than last week because of patterns and when pre-seasons start to have players that wanted a week to think about their futures to then come back and naturally want to get their futures sorted so they're in place by day one of pre-season and movement is more likely this week for a number of clubs than last week for those players that were away. So Sven Botman, for example, could be resolved in the next seven to 10 days, especially if this gridlock in terms of talks between Milan and Lille continues, because then Newcastle is effectively the only offer on the table. I know that some people think that there's one or two of the giants of Europe looking at him as well, but that's not my understanding. The last time we spoke, Steve, I was telling you how a number of top scouts are actually saying they think that Botman's a little bit overrated and can be a bit rash in some of his intelligent decisions. So he's got the technique, but that intelligence, that positional sense needs a bit of development. And that's why I don't think there's too much truth that a PSG, for example, are tracking a player like that. So I expect Botman to be resolved in the next seven to 10 days, at least in terms of him intimating exactly where he's going to go. And then it just depends from there on the logistics and the negotiations, how quickly that one resolves itself. I don't think you'll see too many other surprises as far as Newcastle are concerned. The one that for me might leap out as a surprise name is Ismail Saar, and Eric Bailly is a centre-back that Newcastle are looking at as a kind of Botman backup. And I think Bailly is going to be available at a relatively cheap rate, something under 10 million for sure. And Saar is another player that's been on Newcastle's radar, but it looks like West Ham and David Moyes from people I speak to are far more confident in that one getting over the line. So I don't think that there'll be too many surprises in the next seven days, but I do think that fans that are unaware of how a transfer window works, and then they hear the word patience from the ownership group should educate themselves. And I can give you a little bit of insight into how the process will work. So one of the reasons why Newcastle will be slower than most in the early part of the window is because the ownership group are comparatively new, but also they had to firefight. So their January planning was all about staying up, which means that a longer term strategy wasn't in place. And they have to now, having stayed up, work out who's in the market, who will actually come, what clubs are more advanced. And then obviously Dan Ashworth is very new as well. And even though he knew he was taking this role, he couldn't start until what, about two weeks ago. So Newcastle are going to need more time than most when they go for a target that's been determined either by Ashworth or the new ownership group. And how in January may well have made two lists, one to stay up and one after they had stayed up. 
but there still was not that director of football in place. So that's one reason why patience will be needed and you won't see as many fast opportunistic signings. And the ownership group proved when they become available in January, they will move early and quickly. But I think that summer will be just a little bit more of a slow burner as they determine who's out there that can actually add to the squad. And the other reason for that is because if you actually list the current squad now, there's not that many spaces there for me. I think that Botman would come into the defence and unless Dubravka is replaced by an outstanding goalkeeper, he keeps that spot. Bruno and Joe Linton pick themselves. I think that Shelby stays in the side. I think Callum Wilson stays in the side. I think Alan St. Maximin stays in the side. So maybe you would bring in a Saar out wide and perhaps there's room for a marquee striker, but that's potentially putting Wilson out of the side. And as I say, a centre-back, but it's really for me in the starting lineup, unless there's some outstanding, insane, world-class, global player that, that is unlikely in that sort of, I'm talking about players available in the market, Dembele or Jesus mould, then there isn't that many slots in the starting 11. So Newcastle, I think, are going to be sensible and slower because they want to kind of consolidate what they've got and then play upon the spine that they've already built, which is Trippier, who, because he was injured, will almost still feel like a new signing, having had a great impact over a handful of games and then Danburn and Target. So it's like a brand new defence, effectively. And Bruno and Joe Linton on their day are irreplaceable, which is why, for example, a Tielemans wouldn't be considered now at Newcastle United Football Club. So that, again, is why I would argue that the striker becomes that most important thing. Not because Wilson isn't perfect at the moment for Newcastle, but just due to his age and injury prone nature. So I think Newcastle will be slow. And then the way the window works as well is players can agree multiple contracts with multiple clubs and agents can feed false narratives and Newcastle will constantly be in that mix to try and get higher deals from the selling club's perspective or the agent's perspective. Easy to throw in Newcastle and say, well, they're going to make us an offer of 50. Your offer's only 40. Can you meet us halfway? And that's the challenge as the club grows of being used within a transfer narrative when perhaps the player never even wanted to come to Newcastle United in the first place. And the ownership group are going to have to learn on their feet. And really, so is Eddie Howe, because he's never been in this position before. He's managed, with respect, smaller clubs comparative to Newcastle. And now he's dealing with a higher calibre of names. And he may not know either which ones are genuinely serious. So this is the kind of challenge so early in the window. There's a lot of whispers. There's a lot of false narratives. It's a new ownership group. It's a new director of football. So I think patience is common sense. But the good news is that Target, for me, was the first one you wanted in because it just gets a player that had impressed last season. And then from there, if you list your starting 11 for next season, I would say seven or eight, if not nine, take care of themselves, which is why I don't think that Newcastle need to worry about moving too fast in the market. No, no, definitely not. Uh, OK, uh, lots of questions to get through, Ben. So uh, let's take another one. Uh, not to, Well, I think it's serious from Jolly too, but like he says, Ben, will Leicester ever get rid of those damn annoying <laughs> clappers and music when a goal's scored? It's so false, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, you're not your only club who does this, uh, but there's a lot of people do that, Ben. I hate the clappers. I've always hated them. I think that Leicester introduced them before most. We might have even been the first, and it was all about 
generating a buzz on our Champions League nights and even in the back end of winning the Premier League, I think they were there as well. But it was also part of the ownership group trying to give the fans a connection, things they could take home. So Kung Vishai, the deceased owner, would treat fans to a free beer or pie voucher, things would be left on the seats that you could go away with. And it remains to be seen how many fans took home the clapper or kept it, but perhaps from an iconic win or the Everton game when we lifted the Premier League trophy or Sevilla or Atletico Madrid in the Champions League, you do keep that little memento. And it gives younger fans the opportunity to unravel them and get them signed but a programme is still, for me anyway, better than that. But the short answer to the question is that in an environmentally conscious world where clubs should be green, there's no need to be producing them and sticking them on 35,000 seats and they're irritating. There's better ways of making noise. A lot of people asking this one, Ben, uh, what's people's thoughts on Mike Ashley being Mike Ashley and selling the home junior kits already on his uh, website um yeah it's, it's an in <laughs> it's an interesting thing i'm not sure what i'm not sure what the situation it is and so um, i think it's caught me on the hop a little bit and might, might have caught you on the hop but it seems that you can do this 100 mags is the same what do you guys make of mike ashley selling the new shirt before castoria or the club have officially released it i mean i'm presuming you must be able to pre-order ben yeah, that's my assumption. I haven't looked into this overly, but I don't understand why Mike Ashley would do a stunt and once again annoy the club. Because the whole narrative that we heard was that the transition of sale, even though the sale itself was complicated, was kind of cordial. Then, of course, we heard about the legal action against Amanda Staveley and I'm not sure too much has really materialized since then in the public domain and now we're hearing that Mike Ashley is playing fun and games again with his online store and I know that many Newcastle fans spotted the new kit for sale in stores and online despite the fact that it hadn't officially launched and people are obviously demanding answers and all I can think of is that it's a sales ploy because even if you'll be able to get them at Newcastle first before online, if you can pre-order and that's the place, then you might take your business there. And as a consequence, the money will go through that means rather than directly through the football club. Of course, football clubs also allow you to pre-order the kid as well. But I think what I don't get is that I've been up to many Sports Direct stores on my travels, usually to pick up things like shorts to play five-a-side football when I'm stuck somewhere and someone offers me a game. And the Newcastle shirts last season were just gone. And seemingly that was a conscious choice that you couldn't buy them anymore. He didn't want to sell them. He wasn't part of the football club anymore. And now we're seeing these tactics and these fun and games to either benefit commercially or just aggravate the relationship with the club. And all my reaction is not being overly informed on it, is just it's Mike Ashley once again being Mike Ashley. And to a secondary extent, it's Mike Ashley putting business above personal relationships. 
Same old Ashley, all about the profit, all about the money. John Askew and L Stapleton take us down the avenue of agents. He says, hi, lads. What's your views on players' agents? Some fans think they might have too much power on a vastly overpaid for relatively little work. And L Stapleton says, is it true that agents' fees will be capped after this season? I've, all, I've always said agents hold the power. Uh, ben and that um, you know when people were suggesting that the, the the big six as we like to call them wouldn't do business with Newcastle, I said, well, that's not you know not likely because the agents are the ones who have all the say along with the players. Yeah, I mean every agent's different, and if you talk to Wolverhampton Wanderers and the singular agent that they use to get all their Portuguese stars, they'll rave about the role of an agent, particularly in finding talent in an untapped region. But if you look at the big powered agents they do have a ton of control over where a player goes and the financials and they can be the roadblock between seller and buyer or buying club and player and that's the challenge and obviously from the player's point of view they play a vital role in allowing a player to be cordial with multiple suitors and the clubs the player doesn't choose the agent can swoop in and give reasons but there needs to be more transparency around the role of the agent. I wouldn't say that they do little or no work for vast fees. I think that the agents are working a lot harder than you think, a lot longer than you think, because clubs that want players are going to the agents and trying to agree terms much further out than you think. And the agent is having to talk to and negotiate with multiple suitors because a player may deal ideally agree multiple deals verbally with various clubs so there's a lot of spinning plates to balance and there's actually a lot an agent does that doesn't come to fruition that you just don't hear about and that can be quite challenging but coming back to what i said before the transparency is key and capping the fees is important as well and i think that fifa's plans are to cap the agent's fees at three percent of a player's salary and ten percent of the total transfer fee and that's a smart move but you also have to think about player welfare because we're starting with an assumption that the agents are bad for football and i empathize if that's anyone watching this podcast belief but the agents are still good for the player otherwise they'd get rid of them and find another one and they're a roadblock that allows the player just to focus on themselves and then have offers and financials presented to them and their experienced negotiators and the players at large are not. So if you de-incentivize agents or in a hypothetical extreme, get rid of them, then who negotiates on behalf of the player is most of the transaction between seller and buyer. And at what point are we looking out for player welfare to make sure that a 17 year old, an 18 year old, a 19 year old makes the right decision? Now, the flip side of that is that there's some 17, 18, 19 year olds out there where the agent makes a bad decision and the player gets coaxed into a move that's wrong for them. So there's no right answer here. Every agent is different. But one thing that I do strongly feel is that the transparency over what they do and the capped fees are vital. And my only fear in capping the fees is that imbalance of then the agents are going to chase after that big money deal to get their maximum commission, their maximum caps, maybe at the expense of other players. And if they're not incentivized to make millions and millions and millions, 
at the lower end of football and the younger end of football, you'll have less investment. Because an agent at the moment is trying to maybe also find a 12-year-old and get them on the books as part of the stable and watch them grow and get a sell-on fee or cash in one day in 10 years' time. And if the money just doesn't allow you to take more than 3% or 10% when they're earning peanuts, the agents may walk away from that more risk-reward gamble. And then again, you'll have a lot of young players without agents that might end up moving countries and not have someone to fight their corner. So, you know, a good agent is very valuable. A transparent agent is very rare and a bad agent is bad for football. But there's lots of gray areas within those three extremes or examples. So I don't like making generic conclusions about agents, but I do agree that a cap of some sort will be helpful for the game of football. Okay, I did like this one. Uh, Anne says, it was hilarious when he walked into one of Mike's shops in Lancaster the other week and the alarm went off at the door. I kid you not. He says, me shouting a wall, lass and the staff. How are man? It's only because I'm a Geordie. Uh, very good, mate. Very, very good. Uh, quick one on Leicester. Tielemans off to Arsenal next week. Are Leicester regressing, Ben, says Sean. Tielemans is interesting because Arsenal saw him as a number one priority along with probably Gabriel Jesus, but Tielemans was the top priority long before Jesus became available in the market. And these are year-long negotiations. Personal terms have been agreed between Arsenal and the agent. And the last thing often that you do in a transfer these days is you put down your official bid. So Arsenal have never made an offer for Tielemans, but that doesn't mean a great deal because you line up all of your ducks first to make sure that the player wants the move. And why? Because that gives you more leverage. There's no point in going sometimes anyway first to the club and agreeing a price if the player then says, I don't want the move. And Newcastle are kind of in that situation with Botman where they're very confident of getting a deal with Lille, but they don't yet know if the player wants to join. If they knew that the player wanted to join, when you then go to Lille and make your official bid, you can be a bit more hardball because Lille know that the player is kind of on the buyer's side. So with Tielemans, it looked like Arsenal were just going to complete this and very quickly. And now, because they've brought in Fabio Vieira, there is some talk even though they play in slightly different positions, that Arsenal might not add another central midfielder to their ranks. My understanding is twofold at the moment. One is that Arsenal have not walked away 100%. So I still think that there is a good chance of Tielemans going to Arsenal. And if the interest has cooled, it may just be because of the finances and the volume of players that they want to bring in. So they might try and get Jesus in first, and see who else they can add. And then if the money warrants it and there's time in the window in two, three, four weeks time or beyond, they may make a later move for Tielemans. And knowing that he doesn't want to sign a new contract at Leicester allows clubs looking for Tielemans to be a bit more bullish. I don't think that it is true that Tielemans will just pen a short-term extension at Leicester at this point. And even if we get to the end of the window and no one's come in for him, I still don't think that he'll re-sign because he's pretty keen on having an ex-challenge and having had a good season at Leicester last season. I think he believes that he can make a step up. So I still genuinely think he'll go during this window. And if it isn't to be Arsenal, there'll be plenty of other suitors between now and when the window closes that will come in for him because he's a superb player. Okay. Uh, next question is from Derek. Uh, do you think the media should question American ownership and the high amount of debt it creates for these clubs? I think the media should 
question any kind of ownership and American ownership or links, whether they're majority owners or minority, are rife throughout the Premier League. So what we need is scrutiny of ownership groups and individual directors before they join, once they've joined and thereafter. And the Premier League has perhaps been a bit guilty of letting someone in the door and then stopping the scrutiny. And that's why Tracy Crouch's fan-led review wants a kind of independent body. The Premier League believe that they can self-regulate themselves. But the Newcastle United takeover showed us categorically that the transparency of an ownership group when they come in and afterwards is vital. And the fact we didn't get it during the Newcastle United takeover saga led to all kinds of theories as to what was happening and why and who were the major players controlling the decision-making process. And I can understand why a Newcastle fan would say it feels like because we've got Saudi owners, we're getting more question than Chelsea Football Club when they've got an American owner. And it also feels like we're getting more questioned as Newcastle United comparative to Chelsea under Abramovich. Why? Because he was part of the furniture at the Premier League and had been there for so long that even when he couldn't set foot in the UK, there was not a great deal that the Premier League either could do or chose to do. And it's kind of interesting with Chelsea and the regulation of ownership groups because you have the pre takeover where because the government sanctioned Abramovich then the Premier League felt that they could act and follow suit but I don't think you'd ever seen a scenario where the Premier League said sorry Abramovich you're gone and the government said but wait he's not sanctioned so leagues naturally want to follow suit of governments in the way that they punish a owner who has a discretion or a sanction against them and then the American group come in at Chelsea and Again, the government are involved in that tender and process and licensing. So going forward, I think that the American owners or any owner is not the right way to look at the problem. The test and the scrutiny after the test that any owner comes under universally and consistently, consistently is key, is one aspect. And then I think we don't want to be as generic as saying the Saudis, the Americans. So in the same way that Newcastle will get linked to and criticised, whether rightly or wrongly, for anything the Saudi Arabian government does, we also can't say, well, anything an American does, if it's got the vaguest of links to personnel or an ownership group, should be in that equation. What we should be looking at is more specifically who the American hypothetically is. So if it's Burnley and their debt financing, if it's Crystal Palace and we don't know who the makeup of their ownership group are and the Premier League either won't share it with us or have turned a blind eye, that's a problem. If it's Chelsea and it's a private investment firm, which a lot of other leagues and sports around the world don't want to be the majority ownership groups in their leagues or for their clubs at that point we should be saying well where are we drawing the line not by nationality not on reputation but on two things the type of group regardless of that nationality and then the type of test to actually on board and um kind of 
sense check whether they are suitable guardians of the football club they're taking over, but then the ongoing scrutiny. And what the Premier League does badly at the moment with all of its owners is continue to regulate them in a robust way. And obviously the owners and directors test when they come in also needs improvement. And I, I personally think, I said it during the Newcastle takeover, that the best way of doing that is to have an independent body. Because then whether you're a Newcastle fan saying that there's a conspiracy or whether you're a Chelsea fan that wanted Abramovich to continue, at least when you question the process at any point or complain about it, at least there'll be that independent body there and some kind of transparency. So it's not really about the nationality. It's about the transparency and consistency of testing and scrutiny. That's the areas where I personally think we need to improve. Colin Wilson says, Ben, after this, have yourself a well-deserved chilled pint. You have <laughs> not come up for air. Uh, somebody else saying, Ben uh, Ben definitely runs on Duracell. <laughs> People do appreciate you being on, though, mate, which is nice. Andrew says, Ben, the last team that everyone said was going down won the league the next season. Do you think there is any chance of lightning striking twice? <laughs> it's possible, isn't it? I mean... Everyone wrote Leicester off. They had a great escape and they went on to win the Premier League and they did so, let's not forget, with a change of manager from Nigel Pearson to Claudio Ranieri and losing Esteban Cambiasso, who was one of the key players to keeping Leicester up. I don't think that Newcastle can win the Premier League. And the reason for that is because and I say this as a Leicester fan, it wasn't just about the run that Leicester went on. It was a strange season with a low points tally and both Arsenal and Spurs at different points wobbling, but there was no Liverpool, there was no Man City, there was no Chelsea. And I think that Liverpool and Manchester City are so strong and elite at the moment. And with the arrival of Haaland and Nunez, it means that to win the Premier League, you can probably only afford to lose two or three games and you're going to have to get at least, even in a low-scoring season, 88, 89 points, but probably in the 90s again. Are Newcastle going to get high 80s or 90s? No. Could they get 70 points? Very plausibly, especially if they continue their form from the back end of last season. But I don't see Newcastle winning the Premier League. I don't see a miracle. And when Leicester won the Premier League... Of course, on paper, we're a lot weaker than some of the other clubs. And that's the same with Newcastle if you compare them to Liverpool or Manchester City. You don't have a sort of Nunez and Salah and Jota. And if we're still technically talking now, Mane, even though he's off to Bayern, you don't have those kind of players up front. You don't have a Virgil van Dijk at the back and so on. So you'd be looking at that miracle fairy tale and you'd be winning it on as much football talent as camaraderie and team spirit. But Leicester had Vardy and Mares, and Vardy hit such a purple patch and Mares provided so many goals and assists that between those two, you had 50 plus involvements in terms of goals and assists. So I think that when I look at Newcastle, I don't see that from a Bruno, a Callum Wilson, an Alan St. Maximin and so on, which means that you'd have to find that. And even if you did, you'd have to get 15 more points than Leicester got when we won the Premier League. I just genuinely don't think that a team like Leicester from that position will ever win the Premier League in this modern climate. 
due to the fact, one, that the big six teams, seven, if we are including Newcastle, are just getting better and better. But two, because they're getting more competitive between themselves. So when Leicester did it, for whatever reason, there wasn't really a big six challenging for anything. Now, I think it's the opposite. I think you've got Liverpool and Man City who are just going to stay there. Then you've got Chelsea who are going to bridge the gap. You've got Man U who are going to improve under Ten Hag, in my opinion. You've got Spurs who have spent a ton of money and are going to do well next season. And you've got Arsenal who are active in the transfer market. So I just can only see a scenario where those teams pull away from everyone else rather than a new player coming in and winning the Premier League. OK, well, Newcastle are 50 to 1 uh, at this moment in time. So if you're going to put a bet on, do it. Uh, do it now. Uh, Tom just wants to know as well, Ben, the fixtures are out. If Newcastle get off to a good start, do you think we could finish in the top six? Top six? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there won't be much between 10th and 6th. And I think Newcastle are odds on to finish in the top 10. So once you get to January after the World Cup, you only kind of need to go on a very small run of form to find yourself up there in Europa Conference League or a Europa League spot. And Newcastle, even though they've got plenty of internationals, might even be able to capitalise on the fact that in the lead to the World Cup and straight after the World Cup, they may be a little bit sharper. They may have a few more of their players that aren't involved in the World Cup or even if they were there, didn't play as many games. And as the big six teams bring their squads back, you may get a bit of fixture congestion and fatigue from those World Cup players. And that might allow Newcastle to just steal a few results here and there. So I think Newcastle, for me, even in a bad season, will finish 10th. And naturally, therefore, with there not being much between 10th and 6th, I think that Europe is a very realistic aim. But it will be more for me that kind of 6th, 7th Europa League, Europa Conference League that will still see you come the end of the season kind of 10 odd points or more away from the top four rather than the opposite which was Leicester a few seasons back where you're lingering around the top four and then you decline in the other direction so I think mid-table mediocrity is fine but if I've not seen what the odds are for let's say Europa League football but if those odds were 10 to 1 for Europa League football I would happily stick on a quid. Okay, last question to Sean. He says, Ben, is there any truth that Ashworth and Newcastle agreed not to look at Brighton players in the window, the likes of Sanchez, Trossard and Lamptey? I don't think so. I think that you can't have some kind of, would you like to be our director of football? By the way, part of your exit terms are you're not allowed to go back to your former club. There's not that many, in my opinion, genuinely, that are going to be realistic Newcastle targets at the moment at Brighton. I know that the sort of feeling out there from when Ashworth joined is that the clubs did agree a, a sort of no-raid deal. But how can you implement that in practice? It's against any kind of recruitment or HR policy to formally say, we will never sign anyone. And if we try, we're in breach of a agreement. And... Let's not forget that Ashworth resigned from his role a long, long time ago and he agreed a period of gardening leave. And that period of gardening leave was so he had no real control or knowledge of where Brighton were going to head and he wasn't allowed to formally start his time at Newcastle United. So a fair amount of time has passed between him actually leaving Brighton 
and joining Newcastle United. So it may be there's a kind of gentleman's agreement. It may be that there's a kind of formal aspect that says that he can't come in if he has knowledge of a player's situation that he could only get through Brighton, because that would be insider knowledge. And over a short transitional period, that is legally permissible. Because if he knows the player wants a renegotiation, if he knows the player's wages, he can use all of that as insider information that you would only have by being a Brighton employee. And that's why some people, I think, are saying that in the short term, he won't be able to raid them. But if you go to January or a year down the line or a player that Brighton sign after Ashworth and then Newcastle want him, there'll be absolutely nothing stopping Newcastle coming in. Uh, Colin Wilson says, what a crack and show. Ben, I love to hear your views. Sensible and unbiased. Thank you. And that is where we will finish tonight, Ben. So uh, I will concur with that. Thank you for joining me. Always a pleasure to share this uh, hour with you, mate. Hopefully get you back next Sunday if uh, your schedule permits, mate, and we can talk a little bit more about Newcastle United. Have a good week, mate. Take care. You too, mate. All the best.